This podcast is dedicated to the dissemination of explicit language. But not today. Today we play it all nice-like with the naughty words. It's Friday, July 29th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, I feel pretty good about the Joe Manchin, Chuck Schumer, agreed-upon bill about energy, health care, and taxes. It is, of course, this bill about energy, health care, and taxes called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which is a clever bit of rebranding. It's like if you took my dinner with Andre and you rebranded it, the Guy Fieri Diner and Drive-In presents Yak and Chomp. It would probably sell a little bit better in West Virginia. But like I said, it feels like a good deal to me. I'm kind of happy. I want to concentrate on that part, the feel part. We follow politics because we care about our planet and our country and the future, but also because it is a compelling competition. It fascinates us. That's not a flaw as humans. That's what makes us human to some extent, being drawn to tension and conflict stories. If we weren't, we wouldn't have evolved. So there are always going to be emotions, feels attached to political outcomes, and that's not bad. Feels can be a passion for a righteous cause. Feels can be being appalled at phenomena or a certain political actor who is, in fact, appalling and deserves the opprobrium. But emotions are also guided by the irrational. Again, not bad either, but we should be aware of what's happening. So I look to our feelings as expressed by, well, as felt by myself and expressed prominently in the media. It was announced that Manchin had scuppered this deal two weeks ago. That was July 14th, 15th. We knew the deal was badly needed, and it's inevitable that most of us who cared about the deal are going to react on a logical basis of disappointment. But of course, there's also the emotional basis of disappointment, deep disappointment. If you want to chronicle the depth of the disappointment, it was everywhere. Feelings that were being expressed are feelings of betrayal, anger, but also despondence, despair. So on the anger and betrayal front, first I'll play Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. As with a recalcitrant mule, AOC told us we need no longer spare the rod. And just the extraordinary betrayal of uh, the president by Senator Manchin. Um, I believe that uh, carrots are good, but when people violate uh, their word, uh, sticks are important too. And... I think the the party, the Democratic Party, could um, stand to be a little bit tougher. The Senate sponsor of the Green New Deal, Ed Markey of Massachusetts, tweeted, Rage keeps me from tears. More to the center of the Democratic Party was John Favreau on Pod Save America talking two weeks ago when the deal was off. He got everything he fucking asked for in these latest negotiations in climate. Schumer basically said, first of all, he got rid of the clean energy standard in the last round of negotiations. In this round, he got oil and gas production included. He got the electric vehicle credits out. He changed the direct payments for energy companies to tax incentives for clean energy companies. Like, he got everything. And then what happened is, because Schumer kept saying yes to everything, he's like, oh, fuck. I just got everything I wanted. Now I'm going to have to say yes. So he needed a new excuse. Yep. It's bullshit. And finally, I'm going to play for you John Podesta. I read you his quote on July 15th, calling Joe Manchin the one man who single-handedly doomed humanity. He said this on MSNBC that day. You know, he still claims to be open to it, but I think people have just uh, lost faith that he was ever serious about this. And that's the part I'm focused on. Once faith is lost, can it be regained? For me, I examine my feelings. I would say yes. I was depressed 
that this important tax and environment deal was blown up. And then I was very happy to hear that it's actually happening. As down as I was two Thursdays ago, that is about as elated as I am today. I do not sense this all around. I think the pod save guys might more or less track my feelings on it. Podesta, who knows? But among the people who care so much that they've adopted a sense of gloom, I think that their satisfaction isn't even a fraction of their discontent. Psychologically, I understand why. I mean, psychologists have done lots of experiments that demonstrate we are more loss averse Then we are gleeful about gains. That seems to be true as a species. That seems true about going back through time. Shakespeare writing about how the evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred in their bones. The bill was, let's acknowledge, it was watered down to Joe Manchin's specifications already. It will not solve our climate problems. Far from it. Not having the bill did seem to doom our climate prospects. You know, a slap in the face doesn't sting less if it's followed by a kiss on the cheek or a pattern of third degree burns followed by skin grafts over and over that will eventually kill you. So I get why the disappointment may have hurt more than the satisfaction. Get all that. But I also think that there is a doom. There is a pessimism. There is such an inability to find hope or as per Podesta to have any faith that pervades our media activist class. And while they would say, my posture is actually rational, I've read the UN reports, I would say it is hard to separate affect from empiricism. The this is why we can't have nice things crowd is legion. Search Twitter for that phrase on July 14th and 15th, or don't if you want to avoid the doldrums. They're in what's been called a doom loop And I would advise, to the extent that a person can, exert themselves from that loop. Do so if you have the ability to A, recognize it, and B, enact change. You needn't be sanguine. In fact, you shouldn't be sanguine because that's not going to put the climate fires out. But an absence of doom is different from an embrace of bliss. The mansion flippity-flop was, to me, a welcome development and a good doom loop check-in. I will say this, and I never do this. If you agree or don't or have a friend who doesn't listen to The Gist or podcasts and have been talking to this friend and saying similar sentiments, or maybe your friend is dooming and you think some bald guy in Brooklyn's going to break him out of this, why not look in the app you have? Oh, it probably has a little button that says share. Send it to the friend. Why not? Maybe one person at a time, we could begin to confront our doom. Maybe that friend will say, this guy's full of shit. He's way too happy about a mealy, milk toast, other thing that starts with them, Bill. Maybe that'll be the reaction, but maybe that'll be the discussion. And who knows? Maybe they'll listen to the gist and become not sanguine, but hopeful about our prospects for change. On the show today, it's an N-twin tig. We have some AR-15 pushback. 
which is recommended only if you have full body armor. I try it with just a microphone and good intentions. But first, the robots are going to replace us in factories, on assembly lines. But in the pages of comic books, The Abolition of Man is the first AI-created comic book. If I didn't tell you that and you picked the book up, you probably wouldn't be able to guess. The people behind its creation and curation are Shawn Michael Robinson and Eisner-nominated cartoonist Carson Grubaugh. Why would a cartoonist need to be involved in an AI-generated comic book? Find out next. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. As an art form, I love and respect comics. There are always a few lying around the house. I like the physical form and I will pick them up. And in any given week, I will read two or three per week and push them on my children. I don't talk about them so much on the show. There's only so much time in the universe. And my God, I've got to get to the latest thing that Trump did for you, the audience. But there was one pitch about a comic book that came across my transom that I could not ignore. And it is a new book called The Abolition of Man. And it is, I would say, plausibly posits a future for comic books that if we thought about it, we knew might be coming, but actually might have dawned already. Because The Abolition of Man is the first comic book entirely illustrated by a computer. It is put out by Living the Line. The publisher of that series is Sean Michael Robinson. He joins me, as does Eisner-nominated cartoonist Carson Grubaugh, which begs the question, why do we need a cartoonist on a comic book that's entirely drawn by a computer? Carson and Sean, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Mike. So, Sean, orient us, since uh, podcasts are in audio form (laughs) and comic books aren't, when a reader, potential reader, picks up this book, and I'm going to say picks up because I have it and asked you to send it to me in physical form, what's it look like? What will they encounter? Yeah, you're picking up about a uh, uh, (laughs) 6.6 by 11-inch pamphlet uh, that is staple-bound. In this case, we've got 48 pages, and uh, we've got the title Abolition of Man on top in a uh, sort of gothic-looking, menacing uh, font, and what appears to be a fairly uh, terrifying picture of an unknown auctions of some type, perhaps, uh, on the cover. And then uh, flipping through it, uh, the actual layout of it is a sort of standard six by six uh, comic grid. So you essentially have six panels or six images per page. Uh, The thing that makes it a little bit different is that this entire thing was illustrated by an AI, uh, in this case, a neural network called uh, Midjourney AI. And it is, uh, until very recently, was invite only. Uh, and uh, Carson and I uh, run a YouTube channel about comics and, as well as doing publishing. And one of our patrons uh, sent us a link to this and was like, hey, you guys should really check this out. And Carson was like, oh, my goodness. And uh, as soon as I got into it, I was similarly awed and uh, horrified, I think it's safe to say. 
And before we go to Carson, tell me just a little bit about the story Abolition of Man tells. This first issue, uh, this is entirely Carson's doing. Uh, Carson got into this tool, and uh, for whatever reason, the first thing that, he, uh, that uh, popped into his head is a particular C.S. Lewis uh, essay called The Abolition of Man. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I think when you're actually reading it, it's pretty obvious why that was the sort of first experiment that he wanted to run on that. And in the context of the five-issue series, uh, it sort of acts as an introduction to the concepts that the later issues are going to play out. And then we have a fifth issue that's going to be a sort of similarly dense philosophical capstone that maybe addresses some of the ethical issues uh, that are behind this. So Carson, you're an illustrator. You put pen to paper. What's your role in this? Are you just Dave on Discovery One who has to push the right buttons and keep Hal happy? Yeah, for this book, like I see that role, right? Uh, so my my role in the book was a con- conceiving it. The the AI is not in the place where it can conceive a project yet. But the fourth issue is also written by an AI, but it needs a prompt and it needs someone leading it. So my my role in this in the first issue was just feeding it a sentence at a time from the C.S. Lewis essay, and then it gives you four images. And so I also had a curatorial aspect to what I was doing of picking the one of the four that it generated and saying, okay, like, give me a nice high resolution version of that. And then, and then putting it all together and lettering it and, you know, designing the book, Sean designed the cover. And then, um, issue two and three, I'm taking more control over the aspect ratio of the panels and making sure it like works as a comic book page instead of just a grid. And then in those ones, because we're trying to tell a story, I'm still functioning as like the, the storyteller, which is huge to, to comics, right? Like, can, can, can you follow what's going on? And so in that one, I really had to bully the AI more and say, no, make another variation, make another variation, change my text prompt to try and get the image I wanted out of it. It's a curious project uh, where the two people who have their names on the cover, uh, Carson is uh, the curator and the person who's essentially thought of it. And I'm almost nothing on this first issue, you know, Uh, essentially the humans are there to assemble, you know, have the germ of the idea and assemble it. Uh, But everything else, uh, you know, very accomplished looking, fairly terrifying artwork, all created within uh, a, I mean, possibly essentially mindless, uh, you know, algorithm, essentially. Issue one, which I read, is this famous 1943 was when they published it. But I think C.S. Lewis gave it as a famous lecture uh, called The Abolition Man. These aren't all the lines from the lecture. Were you just picking certain lines? And when you're, were you changing the order of the lines from the lecture in, to, in order to communicate to the comic book reader in a way that was slightly different from just an AI illustrated version of a C.S. Lewis lecture? No, there, were, there was a series of three lectures that is collected in the book and they're largely a commentary on socialism and education. Uh, and the, this is the, the third lecture in, in order. Um, so you could, you could call it an illustrated version of it, but I think the, the important thing to understand is that we're feeding it not just to illustrate the, the essay or the lecture, but to see how it's interpreted. And that interpretation by a supposedly intelligent thing, uh, uh, you know, that doesn't really understand syntax so well. The other thing is that 
by feeding it something that we could all make sense of, uh, you kind of can reverse engineer a little bit of how the AI is thinking. So it gives you a look into the brain of the AI. And that's why I didn't give it any prompts other than just the text for the first issue. There's an artistic through line to the look and aesthetic of it. It's not as if in one panel, there's a Charles Schultz-esque feature. In another panel, it looks like um, Kincaid, the master of light, right? They're all of a piece. Did you tell it that with words? I mean, I know I've played around with some of these prompts and you can say, you know, in the style of MC Escher. How did you get, how did you get the, the uh, consistency in the artistic and visual tone? Well, I didn't, I didn't give it any in the style of an issue one and issue two and three, I said pen and ink, black and white, but that visual consistency I think is interesting because what you read in each panel, the sentence that you read in each panel is all that was given to it. So there was no, it, it, it natively generates a square unless you tell it to generate something else by, by prompting aspect ratio. And if you feed a sentence, it just produces these kind of, uh, Dave McKean, if you're familiar with the, the famous comic painter, Dave McKean, that did all the covers for the Sandman series and stuff. It looks like his artwork and it is very consistent. It's dark. The figures are attenuated. There's, uh, or, you know, they don't shy away from showing organs. Facial features are distorted. But then did you have to pick from a series of choices? Yeah, but they're they're fairly similar. Like, it, it will give you four, but stylistically, it's very consistent through. So the, the real question for me is, why is that the native style of the AI? Um, that That's part of what I think is so interesting about the experiment. It's like, look, I fed it a big essay, one sentence at a time, and it's visually consistent. So... What is it learning from? I think part of it is that a lot of people are prompting it in to say in the style of Phil Hale, in the style of Dave McKean, in the style of Craig Mullins, all these guys that it kind of looks like are popular artists. And so I think we have trained the AI that that's the preferred style. And you're not going to accidentally get a peanuts because no one's training it to do peanuts. And, and, and there's definitely an aspect of it, too, where um, you're seeing a little bit underneath the sort of illusion of the McKean style in that, uh, you know, I, I feel like it's it's actually giving you some insight into what is easy and what is not about tagged machine learning. So they it's not public what what they use for these image tags. Uh, but I would guess that, you know, museum collections and things like that and Google image searches and things like that are a big part of how it's been, you know, quote unquote, trained. Uh, and uh, the uncanniness of it and sort of the similarity to the McKean stuff, a lot of it seems to come from the lack of hierarchy for the images. So if you just give it a prompt that doesn't include a specificity uh, in terms of the face and things like that, you get this sort of melted, almost like a schizophrenic uh, appearance of humanity because there, there's no hierarchy to the image. In other words, like you, Mike, looking at a human being, have a propensity toward looking towards the face and looking towards the mouth. And, you know, you're going to try to see if this person wants to uh, hug you or fight you. Uh, but the machine doesn't have that same kind of uh, response. And so the image has this kind of distortion because that lack of hierarchy it generates something very uncanny. Whereas the color is exquisite. Both Carson and I have a painting background. Carson way beyond mine, but I mean, I don't think it's uh, it's it's an exaggeration to say that this thing generates 
images that, I mean, any painter would die for in terms of color, because that is very easy to learn, it turns out, I mean, comparatively. Yeah, I wonder if the image, you know, as I'm reading it, if someone didn't tell me it was AI, I would think, well, it's certainly of the pen or mind of one creator. And if I had to list the influences, I wouldn't be at a loss. I'd say, well, there's definitely a lot of Magritte in here. There's definitely a lot of Francis Bacon. There's a little Hieronymus Bosch, you know, very disturbing mashups of uh, different creatures. So like take a Hieronymus Bosch, melt it, and then, you know, throw a pear or a baby's foot where a person's face should go. And you've got the visual style of this book. But the, I guess the question is, is it your supposition that the AI learns from what people are prompting it to say and then what people select? So could it be that the people who are playing with the AI now, who are most interested in it, just aren't the kind of people who want a Lichtenstein to be spit out? Or even, and I thought they might want a manga, but I guess not, because that's not what I'm seeing. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think that is accurate in some sense. Uh, but I, I mean, when you go into Mid Journey and play around, you'll see people are people are doing manga and they're doing they're doing stuff like that. Um, so I think some of it is how we're training it. I think some of it is just the image base that it's trained on as well. But I think Sean's right about the lack of hierarchy, and and I think it's just learning to think archetypally in a sense. Like if you if you type Harrison Ford and we tried this, it will look like Harrison Ford. But if you type man, then you get these weird distortions. And so you got to think if you if you average all the Harrison Ford images together, you're going to get Harrison Ford. But if you average together every image that's ever been tagged of man, this is what you're what you're going to get. The name of the comic book is The Abolition of Man. It's put out by Living the Line, the publisher of Living the Line. And one of the names on the comic book is Sean Michael Robinson. The other name is Carson Grubaugh. I don't want to say they're the creators of it. It seems like a computer was, but this could change things. Carson, Sean, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel, in fact, specifically an N20. When a strange man you've never met suddenly gives you flowers, that's Antoine Tig. Some say it's impulse. Beep, beep, impulse. Nope, 
Antwentig. So the furthest we can go back in an Antwentig, by definition, is three weeks, and so we do, to Sonia Saturday, a woman who showed up on the last Antwentig and was identified by her pen name, Sonia Saturday. Oh no, what a calumny. To Ms. Saturday, that is not her pen name, that is her actual name, Sonia Saturday of the Ypsilanti Saturdays. I assume. I do not know from where Sonia hails. I just know that much like the shows that we put out that repeat themselves, she is a Saturday. Now on this Antwentig, this very special Antwentig, there were two or three big issues I'd like to discuss. And the first was put forward on our Reddit page, which I do enjoy and I think serves a very useful purpose. In fact, that will be demonstrated uh, by the story I will tell you. Uh, there was a posting, and the, the, the Reddit page is the gist, that is r slash the gist, rough content stretch. This was put up by sinking ships. There is an X before the sinking and an X after the ships. I'm going to assume his name is sinking ships with a couple X's. Before I criticize, let me say that Mike is a dude. Great start. A good dude. Better start. A solid human. A little too personal. What a very eloquent email exchange. But then he said... Couldn't take the Malcolm Nance interview. I respect that Mike's interview style is to not push back too fervently on his guests. I would say not too fervently, but yeah, sure, of course I'd push back. No, but when you couple that with no conservative opinions, that's true. I'm trying to get some more. And constant talk of Trump, meh, less so than other podcasts, perhaps more so than the OAN network would want you to know about. I don't know what I'm listening to right now. Could we just skip Trump for one day or bring on Katie Herzog or something? Sure. Love Katie. But then what happened? And this is great. Reddit is a self-cleaning mechanism. A bunch of people came in and uh, I think the word is they caped for me. No, they talked about if this was a good interview with Nance, a bad interview with Nance. And generally, people who listened to it said... I thought the Nance interview was okay. I didn't agree with Nance. The people who were writing on this Reddit said, but I can understand why Mike didn't push back that much. People not on the Reddit thread who just wrote in also expressed concern that maybe Malcolm Nance was overhyping the fervor within your average Republican breast. So how much a Trump supporter, of which there are tens of millions, really do want to harm uh, America or liberal America? But on the pushback question, I will say this. I think you were right in one specific, maybe more than one specific. So first I want to play part of the interview with Nance, and here's what we aired. The average Trump supporter has an AR-15. Average Trump supporter believes he's supposed to be preparing for civil war. The average Trump supporter... And so after he, and it led to a long litany of the average Trump supporter, some assertions that were accurate, and also one that I thought was inaccurate. So afterwards, I engaged with him in pushback. I said this. Mm -hmm. I'm not discounting anything, but just as a matter of fact, I question if the average Trump supporter is an AR-15. There were 75 million people who voted for Trump. And I think you should go check the statistics. Well, there are, there, are, there are estimated 20 million AR-15s in America, and right. many people own several. But Check it by family as opposed to by individual. Yeah, okay. In the home. 
But that part did get cut out. Sometimes we have to cut things out for time. I think that uh, editorially we thought, okay, I mean, it's it's back and forth and it seems maybe tendentious and we didn't really prove anything. Um, I would think that you, the listeners, would say, oh, yeah, uh, Mike has the better part of that point. If there are 20 million AR-15s, it can't be the case that the average Trump supporter has one. But yes, in retrospect, putting that in would have not only rebutted one point of fact, but also given more of an impression that there was a rebuttal and push back throughout the interview. I enjoy pushback when necessary. And in retrospect, I do think that it would have been necessary to have kept that in the interview as you heard it. All right. That's somewhat big issue one. Big issue two. So a few weeks ago, I was talking about the young boy who was tragically orphaned by the mass shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, and they raised $3 million for him, which... I analyze why we give. It's mostly to feel good about ourselves, but it's uh, in, in the face of tragedy. This is more money than that boy really needs. He'll have for everything that he needs, but he'll still want for more that which money can't give him. And then I noted that there are many orphans in this country, and I remembered one from a very affecting Washington Post article written by uh, John Woodrow Cox. And it was about two young people. Uh, now they're 10 and 13, Kayvon and Kaylee Washington. They live in Baltimore and their father was killed some years ago and then their mother was just killed. So they are orphans. And I noted that there was a GoFundMe that was established by Kaylee's aunt, who is uh, her guardian now. And I mentioned the fact that it had only raised $325. It was not an appeal directly to you. I did put the URL of the GoFundMe in the notes, just talked about the disparity between those funding levels. And I did think that just listeners might give some and I gave some. Well, that spiel ended with me saying the dollar amount that Kaylee's aunt had raised, and it was $305. That was, I'm not going to say shameful, but just a grossly disparate amount from when you look at the very high profile boy who was orphaned in Highland Park. And just listeners gave so much that now Kaylee has and her guardian, her aunt has available to them well over 14000 approaching $15,000, all given by people who listen to the gist. It's kind of the most, well, let's be honest and in touch with our own emotions. It was among the most heartwarming and gratifying things that have that has ever happened to me. And of course, I'm centering myself here. It didn't happen to me. It was a good thing that we can do for Kaylee. However, Kayvon was left out. I knew that I talked to uh, Vernell, who is Kaylee's aunt beforehand. I talked to John Woodrow Cox. Um, we made sure that this was, you know, this was really who she said she was, and it is, and it is going to Kaylee's aunt, who is her guardian. But John gave me a call, and this, by the way, is a wonderful guy and a great reporter, and he does not adhere to the notion that once you report a story, your work is done, or there needs to be some distance. He knows that when people have big news organizations like the Washington Post intervene in their lives, it has a big impact. And he was in touch with me because he had heard the spiel and he had heard that I had done the spiel, and Kaylee's 
and Kayvon's great-grandmother, Jacqueline White, got in touch with him. Jacqueline White, if you go to the article, is a main character and really the main glue in the lives of this whole family. And these aren't sophisticated people who know the ways of the internet. So she was told that there's this entity called a GoFundMe and she had someone help her and they established a GoFundMe for Kayvon. And that one has now raised $25, $25. And it was because in the vagaries of fate, one raised 350, one raised 25. And the one that raised 350 happened, or $305 happened to be the one I talked about. I talked to Jacqueline. They call her Mama Jack. She keeps this whole family together. She said, Kayvon's 13. He's getting to the age where, quote, all I want to do is wear Under Armour clothing. And she says, I don't have Under Armour money. But what she does is, since school is so important, she says, I will give you $50 for every A you get. And wouldn't you know it, that report card came back with six A's. Uh, Mama Jack said, oh my God, how am I going to pay him $300, which I really don't have. The kids have access to counselors from the school, but no outside mental health. Um, They tried to get a mentor for Kayvon for a number of reasons. It did not take. She's worried that without a mom or a dad, or this this is Jacqueline White's words, with your mom and your dad gone, Kayvon thinks that he doesn't have parents to answer to, and she worries what will come of him. He's a smart kid, he's a good kid, but he's not living with his parents. He's not living with either parent. He and his sisters are separated, and that is their situation. And I wanted to mention that to you, not because I have feelings of guilt or feelings of, you know, there's this phrase of the white savior or someone who goes into a community that he doesn't know about and tries to do a good thing and makes it worse than uh, before. I don't think that I or we made it worse. I do have a little, I will identify that I have a somewhat of a pang of guilt about this that I didn't know about. Mama Jack's GoFundMe, I didn't realize that Kayvon wasn't going to be able to get any of the money. So I'm going to donate to that FundMe, and I will put a link to it in our show notes. Thank you all for all that you have done as it is. And now last, a big thing, is the Lopstar of the Antwen Tig. So one day on the Gist's Twitter feed, I have my own Twitter feed. The Gist's is at PescaGist. We got a note from Steve Kaberski. He's at Steve Kaberski, and his handle is I am Steve Kaberski, Steve in parentheses. So I'm going to assume this guy's Steve Kaberski. And he says, maybe I'm late to the party here. Been listening to a somewhat obscure math rock concept album. Wait a minute. A math rock concept album being obscure? No, wait, I should put the wait a minute here. Wait a minute, somewhat obscure? That doesn't sound like every math rock concept album I've ever heard. Anyway, he's been listening to it for several years. I guess the math must be quite difficult. This might be uh, Foucault's last theorem of math concept albums. And he writes, only today have I put together the fact that your theme song was written by Salmo. Very appropriate and right on. I said, I did not know that. And he said, it's serendipity fish emoji. The eponymous disc. Now, I got a little tripped up by eponymous disc. What's the eponymous part about it? And then I went back to this Salmo thing. Is Salmo a person? Is Salmo an entity? I looked it up. And Steve, or I am Steve Kaberski, writes, the eponymous disc is a concept album that illustrates the life of a trout along the river from birth to death. 
Each piece is composed according to a theme, an episode in the life of this trout. And there, track one on Salmo's concept album. Let's listen. Yeah, that's it. That's the theme song. I didn't even know that. I didn't know that it was originally scored with burbling music underneath. I could understand why the version we have does not have that. You might think that someone is using a water pipe to self-medicate. But this was a revelation to me. Just the uh, just the general genre of math rock concept albums was a revelation to me. But the fact that Peach Fish Productions has... As its theme song, a water-infused fish story that was recorded by a guy named Salmo, eponymously, as a record called Salmo. So speaking of another aquatic creature, crustacean though it is, I give you Steve Kabuski, the lobster of this N-Twentig. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, gperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.